I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of a sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. And here we are. <laughs> I'm still alive. If you listened to our last podcast, you heard I got COVID. I'm at the week, I'm at the end of week three now. I mean, I was putting a good face on everything, but I'm still, you know, coming back. So this is the first day that I've had two days in a row when I felt strong and I can kind of see on the horizon, yes, I'm going to be able to walk around and be around people and have a more sustained work life, but it's really not for the or faint even of have heart. a cat in your office. You were afraid to have the, the kitties in your office. So, so Django who's sitting in the chair, back yes. there, not be with mommy for weeks. It was horrible scratching on my door at all hours of the night. Yes. No, that was me, not him. No, I'm kidding. Oh. Okay. Oh, I need a laugh track on this uh, sound thing. Wow. That joke died. <laughs> that joke died. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so it's just, it's been a fascinating process. Is there anything I, in particular you feel like you've learned from it? Anything that surprised you? Well, my lack of fear surprised me when I was at my worst. You know, when I was actually at my sickest, I was not full of anxiety as I would have expected. The anxiety only started to creep in as I started to feel better. And aside from that, it's been just sort of observing my emotions, observing my energy level 
And I think the best advice I have, because a lot of you are going to get COVID. I'm sorry to break it to you. People, you don't know it yet, but there are all kinds of new Omicron variants swirling around. It's very contagious. We're out and about. It's it's going to happen. And I, I have good news and bad news. I mean, I think the good news is if you're vaxxed and boosted, yes, chances are you will not need to be hospitalized. You will bounce back. The bad news is it's the lie that it's like the flu is going to maybe shock a few people because it's not. It's not. And like I said, I'm at the end of week three. I know of a best-selling writer who told me he lost a month's worth of writing to COVID. I talked to another writer who didn't bounce back for six weeks because she had other uh, conditions. Okay. You know? Would you please tell us a little bit about, because you have not been able to write as much as you wanted to, but no. you have still been able to engage with meetings and doing a little bit of writing. So yes. talk a little bit about how you did that and, and what you'd like to relate about the process of trying to keep yourself moving forward. Part of it is external pressure because the meeting, you've already pushed it back a week and now, you know, you might as well see if you can do it and try to make a few notes on that outline. What's been surprising to me is that things I usually don't like, like grading papers, (laughs) calculating grades, writing outlines, those have given me the most sense of purpose and normalcy through this process. When I didn't have a brain cell to put together to be in deep story and deep characterization and move a a plot forward, I did have the energy to read an essay, calculate some grades, or, or do broad story points. And that has been encouraging. I, you know, I want, I hesitate because I don't want it to sound like people should be pushing, pushing, pushing. The COVID lesson is rest. Absolutely rest. Let yourself bounce back. Let your, your body will tell you when you're ready. And then like I had ups and downs, like it's like, oh, okay, I'm going for a walk and then crash. You know, it's like, or even today I made a little secret trip out of the house that Steve doesn't even know about. <laughs> And I had to go to bed, right? And that's on a good day. That's on a good day. I think if I woke up a month ago feeling like this, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm sick. What's wrong with me? But right now I feel fantastic. I think everybody out there, don't don't be afraid. You know, just confront it one stage at a time. Continue to isolate, mask. I wore gloves. Nobody in the house got infected, even the cats, so far as I could tell. And it, it, it will pass, but take it seriously. You Don't know, just try to shrug it off. I would like to, to ask you whether or not this makes sense to you. We've done a lot of talking about minimum, you know, the atomic standard for moving your life forward, a sentence a day, you know, sort of thing. You know, one sun salutation in the morning, one at night, you know, one, one ritual of such and such. The smallest amount of something... To me, you feel alive when you can feel yourself progressing towards a worthy, a worthy goal. You're being, you're being yourself in that sense. Um, and what I wonder is, do you think it's all right to think about having an absolute minimum to do one sentence, to do you know one thing? Because it is that you were talking about how you weren't able to sink deeply into story, but you were able. to to correct papers. You still felt like you belonged. You still felt like you were productive. I think that that sort of thing helps connect us to the world, actually. But I also want to respect the notion of not doing too much. So what is your thought about that? That's a great question. So I would say it depends on every individual's journey. I almost, I swear, want to do a complete podcast about COVID where people who've had it talk to each other, celebrities, you know, people who aren't celebrities, you know, how they handle it, what they did with it. Because for me, you're absolutely right. Being able to have like a toehold on my grading made me feel like me, right? It made me feel like I was staving off panic in coming weeks because I would have fallen far behind. That's external. But internally, and I think the most important thing to pay attention to is your internal motivation, not what your boss wants, not what your editor wants, not what the executive wants. That's hard. And I'm not going to say I didn't do some of those things or your collaborator. (laughs) I'm not going to say I didn't do some of those things. I did push a little harder than I should have sometimes, but most of what I did was for me because I feel most like myself when I'm writing because I felt connected to a community when I was talking to my, emailing my TAs and working on papers. And it helped me not feel 
helpless and perhaps even despairing. But like I said, despair never entered for me. It has not at all. I'm just keeping focused on the little improvements, looking forward to what's next, reminding myself not to push. And and it will pass for most people. It will pass for most people. But as we know, we've lost more than a million Americans and far more people around the world to this disease. So it is not a joke. No, it is not. And uh, we could take what you said and analyze it, but I really think that what people should do is go back and listen again to what you just said. I don't want to add comments to it because what you're giving us is what helped you. When you feel like you are yourself, it enables you to kind of have a reason to keep going. I mean, I think that as you get older, that voice in your head saying you're never going to get better or why bother the world doesn't need you or whatever it is gets louder if you're not careful. So saying, no, I still have work to do miles go before I sleep. I'm still contributing to the world. My family still needs me. These are the kinds of things that actually we can build health around. So I I recommend anybody go back, listen to what she said. Emotionally, it's very healing, you know, to keep that frame of mind, but we have a great guest today. Yes, we do have a great guest. And he's today. an old friend of yours. So well, think- actually, it's more than that. David was the first person to welcome me into the science fiction field after I came in. You know, he invited me over to his place for chocolate death ice cream and, you know, just was absolute sweetheart of a guy. And it was necessary because I was, you know, I had a lot of bravado, but that was, of course, protecting the part of me that felt like, I don't know if I can do this. Mm. You know, I don't know if I belong here. And so having someone to welcome you in is of critical importance, and I will always love him for that. So let me let me just kind of introduce David a little bit. Um, David Gerald is the Yay! author of over 50 books, hundreds Damn. of articles and columns, and over a dozen television episodes. He's a classic science fiction writer who will go down in history as having created some of those popular and defining scripts, books, and short stories in the genre. Television credits include episodes from Star Trek, including The Trouble with Tribbles. That's what's up. Minders, That's Star, what's up. Star Trek animated series, More Tribbles, More Troubles, and BIM, as well as episodes, episodes of Babylon 5, Twilight Zone, Land of the Lost, Tales from the Dark Side, Logan's Run, and others. His novels include When Harley Was One, The Man Who Folded Himself, The War Against the Taurus Septology, The Star Wolf Trilogy, The, the Dingled Adult Young Adult Trilogy, the Tracker's duology, and many more science fiction classics, including, additionally, the autobiographical tale of his son's adoption, The Martian Child, won the Hugo and Nebula Awards for Best Novelette of the Year and was the basis for the 2007 movie Martian Child, starring John Cusack, Amanda Peake, and Joan Cusack. So I would, it is a very, very great pleasure to introduce my friend, the amazing Sui Generis, Mr. David Gerald. David, put the camera on. Yeah, let's do it. Come on back in. There he is. Thank you so much, David. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, this is fun. This is fun. It's fun listening to you talk about your experiences with COVID. I've dodged that bullet so far. Thank God. Keep dodging, baby. Keep dodging. Came close a couple of times at the last convention I was at and had to be vaccinated and still they had something six or seven cases show up. So and a couple of people did get it. And I'm really sorry about that because it's just like you said. So, you know, it's a balance, you know, going out. What you had to say was very nice to hear. Very good to hear. So I was glad. I'm glad you're feeling better, too. Well, I am. I am. Absolutely. But yeah, I would say, yes, people are going to go to conventions. At one of the big mega conventions I was at, if you wanted autographs from some of the big stars, they were behind plastic. Yeah. <laughs> so I love okay. it. That's going to be me next time I'm out. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I may be thinking about that myself, but because I've got four more conventions scheduled this year. I'm actually, Charlie, Sorry. You can see Charlie in the background. He's he's seven or eight years old and he's a little territorial, but he's he's very affectionate. So, so he's yeah. a rescue. Almost all of my dogs have been rescues. And I was telling that to somebody. Well, actually, when I think about it, they've all been rescues. And I was telling that to somebody 
And they said, and your son is adopted too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. even my son is a rescue, but there you go. Uh, I, I have to brag about my son. In the background, you could see Elise walking Aiden, but I have to brag. Sean has been very, very supportive. He says, dad, you you, you, Dad, you get there. You go. You can see. Uh, yes, a, yes, yes. Like yeah, see a beautiful grin. He's showing off deliberately. <laughs> yeah, what? I'm proud of him. <laughs> we all are. I'm so, so you proud. should be beautiful. I'm boy. proud of my family. I have the best possible daughter-in-law in the world. My son Excellent. is amazing, and my grandson is such a joy. And we got a new one on the way. We don't even know what it is yet, but fantastic. We're very, That's oh, we're so very great. Great. You know, I'm going to tell you the honest truth. You seem to be entering a period in your life where you have a sense of peace about you that I have not seen in you before. It's like something, some things have clicked in, you know, you have this vast body of work and now you have a family and I kind of, I'm I'm interested in how you kept your heart sane all this time you know yeah i know you know but but i mean but but seriously you 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 kept your heart alive i can still see that little boy inside you well yeah i actually they i I, as you know they awarded me the heinlein award at balticon this year and which was totally unexpected i did not i don't think about awards that much and and when I and and this was kind of overwhelming. And when I got there, I and I was drove, so I and I rehearsed my speech about six different ways. And they finally, you know, announced, you know, and, and our winner is David Gerald. And my mind went blank. Wow. <laughs> it was like totally blank. And I got up in front of the microphone. I don't know who the hell this David Gerald guy is. I'm still this nine-year-old kid in the Van Nuys Public Library holding a copy of Rocket Ship Galileo. And I just spent the last 70 years wondering what the hell just happened. But yeah, because I still approach science fiction with this enormous sense of wonder. What what else is there out there? What else can I discover? What else can I learn? So every new story that I get to read is another expansion of what's possible in the genre. Or, or and, and, and I don't get to read a lot because I'm so busy writing. There are stories I want to read. Nobody else is writing them, so I have to. And, and I think that is where, let me say it this way, because I've said this to my, some of my writing students, like they, they fall into the pitfall of comparing themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized early on, I could, I could learn, I could look at Heinlein's work and look, look at how he structures his novels, look at how his characters talk, look at how he moves his prose so briskly. And then I could look at Harlan Ellison and say, look at the passion, look at the the, the, the language that he uses and, and look at how Ted Sturgeon makes the language sing and look at how Chip Delaney makes the language sparkle. How can I, I want to do that, but I can't be any of those writers. I can't be Ursula K. Le Guin. I can't be Octavia Butler, but I can do one thing that none of them can do. I can be, I can write David Gerald stories and nobody else on the planet can write a David Gerald story. There so it my, is. So my job was to find out what a David Gerald story is. And I had to write a lot of stories before I could find out what my theme is, what my story is, what I'm what I'm circling and closing in on. So what um, do you think that is? How would you describe what a David Gerald story is? Well, I, I would say that my stories are about love as much as Ted Sturgeon's stories were about love. Mine are about a, a connection. That thing that happened, you know, Chip Delaney said that, that drama is what happens between two people. Well, what I've been writing about is also what happens between two people. And, and so I would say that connection is a large part of what I'm writing. But at the same time, sometimes what I'm writing about is that broken connection. I just, I have a story in a new anthology called The Man Who Broke Time. And I'm, I, I'm not crazy about that title, but it'll work. And I discovered a long time ago, my best stories come from when I deep, do a deep dive into my own history, my own soul, my own experience, my own feelings. And that was the deepest dive ever. And I'm not going to say anything about the story. You're going to have to look for the anthology, but you'll read it and you'll say, this was, even I have to admit, this was a courageous story because I almost didn't want to turn it in. Why not? 
Because uh, you, you have, you're going to have to read the story. Okay, got it. Oh, okay. It's like <laughs> um, that. But it, it's it's about something that happened in my past, and if I could use a time belt to erase it, would I? And it turns out there are consequences. There are uh, always consequences, and and so yeah. If you're happy with who you are, then do you really want to change any of the things that helped you get there? Well, Sean and I had that conversation last week, and he, you know, there are things that happened in his past, and there are things that happened in my past, and we both agreed where we are today is such a good place that maybe all those things had to happen in our past so we could get to the good place we're in this right now. Yeah, I mean, so, there are other good places one could get to, but I would not want to have my daughter I, you know, or my son or be married to my wife, and if I, may, if I change some of those things, I would end up in a different place. And I, I'm sure that those places would be good places, but I'm willing to accept the pains of my past in order to be who it is that I am at this moment. And I relate yeah. to that as a parent too, David, you know, because Jason just graduated from high school and he's 18. And of course we went through all kinds of ups and downs as parents, as all parents do, but there is something about those experiences that just broadens the boundaries of what our relationship is what possibility is and under and seeing the growth. For well, there, me, yeah. Yeah. There are things I would, you know, that I imagined I will do this someday. I want to do that. I extend it. There are things that I expected to be able to do and they didn't happen, whether it was my fault or whether circumstances just didn't come together or whatever. But what I learned, you know, when I left Star Trek in 1987, what I learned is I'm not dead. I can c- create a new future for myself. And one of the futures was I can adopt a little boy. I can be a dad. I can have my own family. And where I am today with a grandson and another one on the way, where I am today is a much better place. Because when I think about it is I could be another one of those bitter old millionaires producing bad television or second rate television, getting one more slice off the same old sausage. Or I can be my own person living my own life, writing the story, writing my own stories that will stand out on their own or not. But I'm ambitious enough that it's okay with me if I fail. Even even if I fail, I am still being my own person. I am not working on a franchise. And I'm writing stuff that could not have happened if I were working in television. And I'm not against television. You can do a lot of great things in television, obviously. But the thing is, is you shouldn't have to give up yourself or your authenticity. And, and, And so one of the things that I've set for myself, and I know you asked me to talk about this earlier, is even wherever I am, the job is to explore, to discover, and to learn. Because that's that's where the 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 that's where the writing comes from. It comes from the new experience. That's a friend in the background. One of Sean's friends comes over to help you know, every Friday. So Sean's been building furniture for me. We, as I said earlier, we remodeled. You can see the new floor, and uh, and so all my all, all the old bookshelves that were falling apart, we got threw out, and and we picked up some stuff at IKEA, which is not. It's, it's adequate. Our game plan is to move to Vermont in two years when the new baby is old enough. Mm. So everything we're doing now is what can we do so we can live comfortably and nicely and, 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 and still with an eye towards nothing. We're not going to do anything so permanent that we, we can't move. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So, but everything, let me do it this way. Everything in life can be an adventure if you do it right, <laughs> even washing the dishes. So, so what is your process for turning a, a mundane activity into an adventure? Well, I, I, the story I use is I used to hate what you resist persists. And I used to hate doing the dishes. And then one day I, I was had to do the dishes. I mean, they're piled up to here. I'm going, I hate you dishes. I hate you. Oh, rip me harder, rip me harder. Oh, that felt so good. And I turned it, into a, turn, turned it into a game. Just turned it into a little game so that every dish had its own little voice and had its own, you know. And, then, and so now it's like, you know, I'm just going to scrub the dishes till they're clean and but if I start to feel annoyed, if it turns into a chore, I find a way to turn it into a game. You know, I'm just going to scrub you little dish within an inch of your... <laughs> right, 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 right. You yeah, know, in, in every job that's to be done, there is an element of fun. Find the fun. You can catch me singing sometimes. Just a spoonful of sugar. There you go. an inch upon this your is, waist. <laughs> this is a whole... <laughs> This is a full service podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We get to hear David Gerald singing to us. Now, I, Listen, I I'm chomping at the bit. I'm chomping at the bit. And you know I am, Go ahead. Steve. Go ahead. <laughs> Come on now. We have David Gerald on our podcast. And I know it's it's going back in the way back machine, David. And maybe you're tired of talking about it. But something that was very meaningful to me years ago is that you gave our son, Jason, a triple. And of course, I grew up watching the original Star Trek and reruns, and that is a classic episode. It's, you know, it must be a double-edged sword to have such early work as also such well-known work. I understand that. But could you sort of... downhill ever since. (laughs) No, it hasn't. But could you, well, could you talk about those days like you're a young writer how the heck did you even get into yeah and I, I would modify that a little bit if we can combine this with theory of writing in the sense of the genesis of the idea your love of trek how did you do this how did you get yourself in that position and how did you write it what what, well, what happened I, there obviously i had two years at the usc film school and then I ran out of money. So I went, I, you know, I did, still didn't have a degree. So I went and did two years of theater arts at CSUN. And, but also remember this longtime science fiction fan. And back in those days, you could keep up. You could read everything that was being published and still have time left over to do your schoolwork. And there wasn't a lot that really, you know, there's maybe one or two new novels a month. And then there were the magazines. And you'd be through with the magazine in a day and a half, two days. And there was, let's see, there's Galaxy, If, Worlds of If, there was Analog, and there were maybe, there's Amazing sometimes, and that was pretty much it. And then there were the back issues if you haunted the, the used bookstores. But so I had been, I had an agent and I was submitting stories to Bonanza, I almost sold to Bonanza until they found out I was 14. Well, I looked like I was 14. And then the following year, Star Trek came on the air and I'm looking at the first episode and they're going to screw it up. It's going to turn into Lost in Space. And I thought, well, I know science fiction. I know script format. And so I submitted an outline, a very big outline, which they couldn't do because they already bought up for the first season. But Gene Okun says, come back for the second season if we have one. And I submitted, I always want to do the story about rabbits in Australia on a spaceship, which, you know, Heinlein had done that with the flat cats. But in Star Trek, you can add the Klingons and, and and the thing is, is when the out, the outline I submitted was not fully fleshed out, but they, Dorothy Fontana thought there might be a possibility there. In, and Gene Alcun said, let's give the kid a chance and see what he comes up with. We can always rewrite it later if we have to. And my job, my thinking at the time was I have to come up with a story that they can't come up with but want to do. So I have to be... And I did the math. There's 4,000 members of the Writers Guild. Half of them are not writing regularly. And how may, maybe only about 500 are doing freelance television. Maybe only 50 or 100 are going to submit to Star Trek. So I only have to be better than, let's say, 50 writers. And if I know science fiction, 
then my job is to turn in a story that's better than the other 50 are turning and submitting. How old and are you? How old were you in this? I was 23 at the time. Okay, because last few, you said you were 14, and I was like, wait no, I was joking about that. Okay, I looked okay, like okay. I was 14. Okay, got it, got it, so got it. Got I it. was getting carded at the bars when I was 33. Okay. And, and the guy said, look, I'm going to let you in, but next time get an ID that's closer to your age, <laughs> a fake ID. This I said, I, said, <laughs> I came close to kissing. <laughs> it's so, funny. Right. Anyway, so, but we- You only uh, had to beat 50 people. Yeah. So anyway, but I, I sat down when they gave, let me start working on it. I, I structured it. Everything that I learned in film school about structure, everything I had learned about watching all the great movies and then the great television shows. Here's the format. You have these four acts. You have a tag and a teaser and you have and you have to have so many scenes per act. You have to move forward. So I wrote each scene down on a three by five card. And because I wasn't quite sure about the order, but as soon as I put them on three by five cards, I could shuffle them around and say, okay, so here's this plot line, here's this plot line, here's this plot line, and then one from this column, one from this column. And then I looked, see, how do they fit together? And so the structure of the story was perfect from that point on. It could, you couldn't tweak it. You couldn't say, well, let's move this around, let's change it. It was like, once I had the story structure in place, we were in really strong shape. And uh, then I just, I wrote a fairly good first draft. And, and here's my thing about comedy is take the jokes out and see if you have a good story. You don't have a good story. It's, it's not a good script. Mm. A good comedy has to have a good story despite the jokes. Even if some of the moments in the, in the story, you know, in some of your scenes are jokes in themselves. You have to have a solid story underneath. And the tr- Trouble with Tribbles has a, has a very solid story. No jokes, and it still works. And uh, what happened is, as we kept working on it, it's like the jokes started creeping in until it became an outright comedy. It was a very, it was a, more of a gentle story, but we started at it. The jokes started creeping in. D. Kelly suggested the line, now he tells me. So, oh my God, that's perfect. So, of course, you get that great moment where Kirk gives him the look, you know, and 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 there's the other various other things like Spock picking up the triple and say, fortunately, I am immune to their effects. <laughs> you, you, you know, it's it's the jokes. Kept, and, and then when I finally saw everything put together, there were things in there. I don't remember writing that because you realize the actors had added and the director had come up with things on the set, like Kirk saying, I have a ship to take care of, a wall. And he walks out and it's like, oh yeah, that works. I hadn't written that line and that piece, but it worked. So I got about, I would say somewhere between 80 and 90% of what I had written on the screen, which is a pretty, pretty good ratio. That's great. This television is a committee and everybody wants to put in their two cents. Fortunately, with Star Trek, every, that show, everybody was aligned on doing the best possible job. And they were always looking at what's this script about? How do we make this better? And and I watched Shatner and Mark Daniels and Jerry Finnerman conferring on how to light a scene to make it more effective from the Doomsday Machine. And so watching them work was absolutely a lesson in how to do television well. They weren't arguing with each other. They were supporting each other for every single shot. And, and Shatner was in, you know, Shatner had to do 60 pages of script a week, which meant he had to learn 10 pages of dialogue every night, which I think accounts for his delivery. He was trying to remember his line. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. Where's my laugh track when I need it? Oh my gosh. But were you surprised first by the popularity of that episode, but now in retrospect, the popularity of Star Trek. Well, yeah, I did not expect Star Trek to be iconic show. In fact, it, I, I tell this story a lot. The night the episode was aired, I had a party at my house for all my friends from school. And Bob England was there. When he, you know, Freddy Krueger. And not yet, though. And he went on at some length. This is such a great episode. I didn't know you could write this well. This is really remarkable. You are really, this was really good. And finally, he said, Bob, 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 stop. It's only one episode of one TV show in 20 years. Nobody's going to remember it. <laughs> yeah, David, well. challenge accepted. <laughs> um, Why do you think Star Trek has had the longevity that it's had? I, I think two things. I think, first of all, at the time, 
it was because NBC had switched to all color and the color sets weren't very good in those days. So they wanted bright colors that looked good because people weren't to, didn't know how to tune their sets. Let's just have really bright. So what you got is the, you know, the red and the blue and the gold uniforms and the bright colors on the walls and everything was bright. And most science fiction shows were not bright, and especially today. Mm. So people were tuning in to watch Star Trek, not only because it was bright, but it was brightly optimistic. It said, there's going to be a great future and everybody's going to be part of it and nobody's left behind. And so you tuned in for the bright colors, but what you got was the bright subtext of we're going to be a better species in the future. We're going to have a better tomorrow. We're going to have a better future. We're going to be better people. And it inspired you. Even if you only tuned in for the adventure, you somehow you were getting this little piece in the heart that was saying, yeah, this is the future we want to build. This is the future we want to design and build. And really, Star Trek was about social issues, very much so. But it was always about how do we address these issues? How do we acknowledge them? How do we resolve them? How do we, how do we, how do we, and, and, and underneath that, is who are we in the universe? What's our place in the universe? What does it mean to be a human being? And that's where the conversations between Spock and McCoy were critical because you had logic arguing with emotion and finding a middle ground in Kirk. And so there was this perfect ensemble, this perfect triangle, which was really about what does it mean to be a human being when you're confronting these incredible challenges out there in the universe? Fantastic. That, that's that's really kind of remarkable. I I want ordinarily we don't ask people to give you know where contact information until the end, but I would like you to talk spe- a little bit specifically about your teaching and where people can get in touch with you because I would like you to just give us three points that you ordinarily you know share with people. Right. So first of all, where do, where do people where can they get tap into some of this amazing wisdom? Well, you can find, <laughs> I don't know, there's amazing wisdom. But, <laughs> oh, it's it, pretty amazing. It's everything, yes, it I wish I, it's everything I wish I had known when I started because exactly. it would have saved a lot of time. Exactly. Yeah. All right, I'm on Facebook. All you have to do is look for David Gerald on Facebook and you can send me a private message saying, where's your writing course? Patreon.com slash David Gerald. And Gerald is spelled G-E-R-R-O-L-D. And just like it's spelled like it sounds, and, uh, and it's only $27 a month to, to participate in that. And you can download all the stuff I, I upload about all the various writing conversations. In fact, I have a whole bunch of audio interviews to upload to there. But uh, the thing is, is if you go to the, the bookstore and you browse the writing shelves, there's, you can find two kinds of books. One, all those books on how to write that are written by people who don't write. And I say, avoid those like, avoid those like a dreadful cliche. <laughs> because you know one of the books which i absolutely despise is called save the cat it was written by a guy who had written two very bad movies and all of a sudden here he's got this theory about how to write a movie and one is the the villain has to do something nice like saving the cat at the beginning of the movie so you know you can like him even though he's a villain or the hero has to do something and i was like no Go look at HUD, for instance, where Paul Newman plays an absolute prick of a character. He doesn't have to do anything nice. You don't have to like him. You have to identify the kind of person he is. So I say stay away from those books, but instead look for books written by people who have actually written books or movies, or like William Goldman, Nora Ephron, Rita Mae Brown, all of these absolutely marvelous writers. Did I mention Ray Bradbury? Yeah. Yeah, Uh, You should. All of these marvelous writers who are sharing their insights, what they discovered along the way. Kurt Vonnegut has a couple of great books of essays that are very interesting as well, because they talk about his experiences. Now, you don't have to agree with what you read, but you can explore, discover, learn. And, and, and eventually, here's the other thing. You have to find out what works for you. When I tell my writing students, they ask me, well, can I do this? Can I do that? And I, always, I only have one answer. You're the author. You choose. Because as the author, you are functioning as God in your universe. You, you know, nobody else is going to sit on your lap and help you type. You have to make all the 
This is why writing is exhausting. You have to make all the decisions yourself. We used to joke, this is why the occupational hazard for writers is alcoholism, because at the end of the day, your brain is exhausted. Making all these decisions, you're staring into a giant light bulb now. I mean, it used to be, a, you know, you had a sheet of paper. It was a little more relaxing. Now you stare into a giant light bulb and 90% of what you're doing is saying, no, that's not it either. Right. So, but, you know, here, I, I, while you were talking earlier, I made some notes. Oh, this is how I this is this is my way of doing it. I'm not saying anybody else has to do it this way, but this is my way of doing it first. And I repeat this to myself several times a day. Do what's in front of you. Mm. Be 100 percent. Be 100 percent, whatever you're doing, but do what's in front of you and be 100 percent doing that. The second thing is. I only, my rule is I will solve one problem a day and then I'm done. Now, sometimes I solve two or three problems. You know, it's like I have a lot of errands to run. So, you know, go and do four or five different errands. I'll come home by noon. I'm exhausted. But I say, that's it. I'm done for the day. The rest of the day is mine. I can write. I can listen to music. I I can play a game. I can do anything I want. But I have solved my one problem for the day. And if I want to do two, that's gravy. Most important Set your priorities. Family is always over here. Family is more important than anything. You know, so I don't go out of the house without checking with Sean or Elise. Can I pick up anything? Is there anything you need? Yeah, get diapers or yeah, get me some of this. Or, you know, Sean will say, I'm barbecuing tonight. You got to pick up beer because we don't know that the hamburgers are done until he finishes the first beer. (laughs) That's how we time it. That's a great system. So now let me give you a couple other things. These are great. One is you must avoid chronovores, people who want to use up your time. Mm, um, chronovores. Say that. In people fact, who, time suckers. Applause, people who read my manuscript. Now, yeah, what's in it for me, right? Mm. Uh, I work for a living. Are you going to pay me to consult? And I've done some consulting on other people's books and scripts, and they've paid me for it. So it's like, yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell them. Here's what I, here's what I bill. And I give him, you know, I, I won't mention the guy's name, but he had a book he'd written and uh, he said, can you suggest an editor? And I said, I'll edit it for you. And he says, what's your price? He, he was when I said, OK, a thousand dollars. And it was a great book. It was a truly great book. And but I, I, I made notes as I went through. Here's how I'm reacting as a reader to this, this, this and this and this. this. And he got, I don't know, like 20 pages of notes from me. You know, he, he so if I'm going to do some job for somebody i'm going to get if you pay me ten dollars i'm going to give, give you fifteen dollars worth of value right so but avoid toxicity just walk away from people who are not contributing and this is what i have said to sean many times and to other people am i contributing to this person are they contributing to me if the answer to either of those questions is no there's something wrong with that relationship either kill it or cure it So, and then finally, the last one that I had wrote down is let people contribute to you. People want to contribute to each other. You got to surround yourself with people who will contribute to you, who want to contribute to you. But also you've got what the larger sense there is you've got to build a support system of of like writers you can check with or qualify to give you, oh, you missed this point or you ought to do this or take this out. So you need you need a support system of writers who are at least on your level who can give you a fresh look at your work. But also you need people who aren't writers who, you know, invite you over for dinner or, you know, come over or, or you know, can I come visit or, or I'm in town? Can I bring you chocolate? And at the same time, you have to be able to contribute to them in turn, too. So and sometimes it's a simple thing. I've named a character after you. It's a horrible villain who gets killed in a dreadful way. Oh, good! (laughs) I got a question for you. You meet a lot of people who are wannabe writers. Have you noticed any common characteristics among the unpublished writers where you think to yourself, this person's going to go somewhere? What are those characteristics? And what might they they be? There's a certain... I don't don't even know how to say it because intelligence is the wrong word. Determination is a large part of it. But I would say there's there's a critical awareness of knowing the difference between what's good and what's not good. I, I, great writers come from great readers. So 
basically, if somebody is a good reader, I, I think they're more likely to become a good writer. If somebody's total experience is television franchises, what they're going to turn out is a lot of imitation of the franchise. But also what you read, you know, the uh, saying you are what you eat. You're also, you are what you read. You are what you read. So a lot of us who grew up with Heinlein, we became, a lot of our writing was either imitation Heinlein or rebuttals to Heinlein or imitation Ellison or rebuttals to Ellison. And I've done both. I've done all of that. The War Against the Tour is, is it looks like it's a Heinlein book, but it isn't. It's saying things that Heinlein couldn't or wouldn't. So, which I think is part of its its appeal. I, I think those who, those who are not going to be writers tend to be Spanish and they tend to, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. It mean, I, I mean that in the sense that they're so wrapped up in their, in the in the fanish aspect of the work that they're missing the professional disciplines involved, or they have weird theories about what writing is like. Oh, I'm not going to read any books about writing, and I'm not going to read any. I'm not going to read any books in science fiction. That way, my science fiction will be pure and untouched. Right. Yeah, that's a mistake. Ugh. And, that's a mistake. And so the spaceship crashes and it's Adam and Eve. Okay, great. Yeah, like that's pure and untouched. Or or one person said, I am going to do all the writing classes and read all the writing books. And so that way my first book will be perfect. And I said, I threw her out of class. So <laughs> I said, you become a good writer by developing muscle memory. You know, it's a, just like you with the martial arts, Steve, and, and that wonderful class you that you invited me to participate in was very useful. I'll tell you that story another time. But muscle memory in writers is a million words. At least you have to learn what cliches keep bobbing to the surface. You have to learn what words you're overusing. You have to learn to recognize those terrible sentences before you type them. You say, nope, that's the wrong. It's, it's, you have to get to the point where you're staring into the screen saying, that's not it either. I need to find a way to put this sentence together that is precise and and flows and at the same time expresses exactly what I want to say. So before every sentence, you're looking exactly at like a dozen different things, that problems that have challenges that have to be solved in that sentence. And then when you've got it, then you can go on to the next sentence and do it all over again. <laughs> and so that one sentence a day is at least you're getting one sentence a day. Right. But I will fight my way through a paragraph for like a week before I I think this paragraph is anywhere near close to what I think it should be. And then some days I will end up writing the equivalent of 20 pages of text and I'll go back and I'll look through and yeah, I can fix this, expand that, flesh this out, cut this. But every time the goal is to look at each sentence and discover what did I want to say and what's the best way to say it? And how do I say it so that it flows rhythmically and magically into the next sentence, the next paragraph, the next page? Now, I've got a question for you that I've never been able to ask any of our other guests. And it's a personal question. What was your impression of me when you first met me? Because I was just, you know, coming into the field and I, I kind of do one kind of have a, a question. How did how did you see me? You know, just what 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 was your impression? It was a long time. Well, first of all, I thought you were cute. You still are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to you're agree. You're really this cute man. Now, and there was nothing sexual involved at the time, but I still noticed you were cute. But I think what spoke Charlie. Rosebud. I think what spoke most dramatically, most loudly to me was your enthusiasm. And I think I responded most warmly, most affectionately to your enthusiasm. And it wasn't, oh, gosh, I get to meet David Gerald, because I'm bored with that one. But it was that you got to be a part of the science fiction community. You were in love with science fiction. You were in love with writing. Yeah. And you were thrilled to be in this. And I recognized that was who I was at my first Worldcon meeting Annie McCaffrey and Fred Pohl and Lester Del Rey yes. and Gordon Dixon and Paul Anderson and Bill Farmer and, and all of these, you know, so many. And I recognized in you that same enthusiasm. And, you know, because what happens too often is after two or three years of attending conventions and realizing we all have feet of clay up to our armpits, you, you lose that sense of wonder. But you've never lost it. 
And Man, I just, I love artists. I love the arts. You know, it, it's seeing, you know, warts and all, seeing how flawed human beings, because we're all flawed, create these works of beauty. You know, well, like, it's yeah, amazing. Let me agree with you. Let me agree with you on that, because I, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Harlan Ellison and Ted Sturgeon and Robert A. Heinlein and, and Annie McCaffrey and a lot of others who I admired and loved enormously. And at the same time, recognized the humanity of each of these people. Not only great people have great virtues, but often have great flaws to match. And the question is, can we love each other because despite our flaws, not that you were, Oh my God, they have flaws. I'm walking away. They don't live up to my standards, blah, blah, blah. No, no. It's like, we all have our quirks and idiosyncrasies. Can we love each other in spite of the fact that we're all human and as human beings, we're all imperfect in one way or another. But what mitigates the imperfection is the ambition, the goals, the commitment, the determination, the willingness to contribute, the enthusiasm. I saw that in you. I hate to say how many years ago that was. It's been a while. It was like <laughs> 1978. No, really. On uh, Iguanacon, I think, in, in Phoenix. That's where I met you. And I think that's where I met Octavia Butler and Chip Delaney. I never got a chance to know Octavia as much as I wanted to. She was, but you know, I could admire her enormously. And when I won the Nebula for the Martian Child, one of the great moments was the fact that she was the presenter. I felt oh so, wow! That was so cool. She's just, just such a remarkable writer. So remarkable, and we lost her way too soon because way too she soon. would have been one of our best grandmasters. No question about it. And her, her 75th birthday celebration is coming up this coming week. So, yeah. David, I want to ask you, in terms of your own joy, because, you know, as Steve mentioned earlier, he sees that also in you, that your little boy is alive and well. Do you have specific rituals, patterns that help you stay connected to that spark of joy? Well, Sean and I sit out back in the backyard at least two or three times a week, just sitting and talking and winding down at the end of the day. And uh, sometimes it's with a beer. Sometimes I take a toke and he takes two tokes. Uh, <laughs> he, he manages his ADHD and, and he wants me to manage my aging and you know i don't have the strength and endurance i had when i was 75 so he wants he takes good care of me good and, but the uh, the other thing is is well today earlier today elise and i went grocery shopping i go with to help and of course we put aiden in the cart and so i get to push the cart and so aiden is at that age where he loves to be played with so you know like we can have a whole conversation of yeah, right. While you're shopping. And he goes, ah! And so I think on some sense, I think we have to get back to our physical joy of just existing in the moment, whether it's picking up the pooch and saying, you're my favorite dog in the whole world. Would you like a belly rub and playing with the dog, playing with the children? I think the heart and soul of it is not losing our ability to play. And I think this is, I, I know, Steve, I know you get this, and I, I'm pretty sure Janana Reeve, I'm sure you get this, is that writing is one of the ways we're being playful. We're playing. Yes. We're creating. We're building. We have this wonderful Lego set. It's called language. And, and so I think that the heart and soul of keeping your joy in life is keeping your ability to play. And with me, it's like, I love to explore new music, I, and yet I'll go back to my classical music, or I'll listen to the jazz, John Coltrane, or yeah, or, or and John Coltrane is is always an adventure because you actually have to turn off everything you know about music and listen to what John Coltrane is doing, and uh, and then and then I'll go back to the Beatles, and, and you know I, I hate to say this, sometimes I'm bored with Beethoven, sometimes I'm bored with the Beatles, sometimes. I have to get away from them and then I can come back and listen with fresh ears again. There's you know, so much be, music out there too. Oh so my much. God. I've got yeah. like four or 5,000 CDs and I only have half of them ripped to the computer. I got to get back to work on that. But when I'm on a trip, I will take my music players and I'll set it to shuffle. So I'm not listening to the whole symphony. I'm listening to tracks picked at random by the algorithm and so I'm always getting surprised by what's playing, but I'm always discovering the music. 
and I get better sound quality than I can off the FM radio and on, or spot, Spotify or whatever. But I'm also getting the music I picked out that I want to spend more time with. But it's not just music. It's everything. It's books. It's it's movies. It's what can I discover? What what new? You know, there are people who oh, they only want the next Marvel movie and they only want the next Star Trek this or the next Star Wars. That. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. But there's I, I started making a list of movies that I consider essential, near perfect movies. And you have The Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain. You also have Casablanca. You have The Godfather. You have Stagecoach, the original version of it. And, and, and maybe The Maltese Falcon. And I was looking, would I put Gone with the Wind on that list? And I said, yes, it's problematic. But if you look at it as the movie they set out to make rather than the, the social commentary you want right. to add to it, it is, it's a movie about a spoiled brat. Yes, I think it's a beautifully effective film. I mean, yeah. with, with a, 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 so many iconic scenes and bits of dialogue oh and interactions. Goodness. Oh, yeah, it's and, important. And, and an incredible punchline. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Like, oh, yeah. So, Well, like so uh, much art, we have to slog through, you know, the ways that, let's say, it hasn't aged well to to get the lessons and 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 learn from these, if, if you choose. Not everybody can. Like, you know, Birth of a Nation also has a lot of great, craft but i just can't watch that but gone with the wind is a cut above at least uh, birth of a nation i can say that i i love it because the the photography is so astonishing they were still learning how to do technicolor and every shot in it is beautifully beautifully lit and staged and mm. and and they created an epic on the back lot at mgm and yet they made you feel that you had you know, you look at it and there's no sequence that is broad or sprawling. There's only one or two scenes. You get the whole incredible, like that scene where they pull back and here are all the bodies and wounded lying in the railroad yeah. car. That gives you the epic sense. But if you look at most of it, it's 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 mostly close and medium angles and, and, and only a few long shots. And, and yet they managed to give you a feeling like Lawrence of Arabia that you have been in this incredible journey from a filmmaking point of view it's an incredible job well based on what you said there david i can see that so much of your joy and being centered in the moment is rooted in family obviously whether it's the dogs and the baby we've heard through the podcast music film books all of that all of that that's why i kind of think you should not cut out the baby crying i mean this is this is life that of, 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 of our guest. It, it's part of what is keeping him alive and keeping him youthful in that sense. He is engaged with life and life is messy. Yeah. Um, so yeah I think actually, I have that written down as a as a Solomon short quote. Life is messy everywhere. This is a variation. Life is sacred everywhere. And I realize, no, life is messy everywhere. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. You know, also you know, vicious, but it's messy. I... You know, you're the only person who I have gone out of my way to say, listen, his work on writing is is something that you should look into. And with that with that caveat, I would like to talk a little bit about what it is that we do in that Please. in that sense. I yeah, love you your description. description. Marvelous life writing, which ties in, you know, you post these one breathe. I look at every time I see your name on Facebook, it's like, oh yeah, I gotta remember to breathe. But <laughs> but well you, yeah, I mean it's like so that's, much that's, work. This this the stress management. I mean the core of life writing is applying the structures of writing to life and life to writing, especially the you know my modified Campbellian version of the hero's journey. It, it it's modified to apply that both to the structure of writing and to the way that we write and the way that we live allows us to take the wisdom, the innate wisdom that we get just from living life and begin to to look at our writing. Is this real? Does anybody want something? What is there something standing in their way? What is the internal and external fear or pressure that stops them? What do they have to overcome? What do they have to learn? How do they have to grow? What is the moment of greatest despair and how, how do they find the hope and the faith to move through it? So in in looking at those things and creating this, what we did was we we melded this with Tanana Reeves' approach to writing. To say a little bit about that, sweetheart. Oh, uh, really all over the place, you know. But back to what David said, life is messy. 
right? So the Life Writing Premium Program is intended to blend our voices and give writers a sense of structure while they're in the midst of the mess and realize, oh, they are making progress. I love what David was saying about writing a sentence, because we always talk about a sentence a day, but he really broke it down that writing a sentence a day sounds like it's not a lot, but it's also everything. Well, he was talking about writing, solving a problem every day. I well, love. Well, he it. also talked about writing is problem solving. Yeah, and storytelling. Right. Storytelling is problem solving because you invent a problem for the hero. Yeah, you so, either crush the hero or you the hero discovers they are big enough to solve that particular challenge. And the, so we, this is why writers we we invent our own stresses. We invent problems to solve, and then we invent heroes who have to solve them. Absolutely. Or we invent a hero and ask, what is the perfect situation to test this person? Yes. To to empty them out so that we know everything. And at the end of the original Die Hard, you knew everything you needed to know about John McClane. Everything after that was just, let's make some more money. And uh, and it was fun. But, But that first movie was creating a man who was separate from his, from understanding how much he loved his wife. Yes. And by the end of the movie, he was more, he was in alignment with his values. Yeah, Again, he a, understood what she had in him. There is a point I want to add. The more movies you see, the more books you read, the wider range of experiences you create for yourself, the more you can identify with more people. The opportunity, there's the opportunity there to learn and discover your own ability to empathize. That's right. And so, yeah, it's so important. So reading, getting out, listening to music, all of that is about learning empathy and connection to others. Yeah, I, and I, it, I strongly advise that people find mentors, that they model excellence. You look at somebody and say, this person is further down the road than I am. Can I get into a position to hear what they have to say? David on Patreon and on Facebook has made that clear how to do that. We, our course, the Life Writing Premium course at www.lifewritingpremium.com is our approach. A year-long workshop where every week you get writing prompts, essays, videos, audios from us, uh, an online community, the Life Writing online community. We do hot seats where we actually read your stories and analyze in the life writing way. So lifewritingpremium.com, if you like the way that Tanana and I seem to think about writing, the way we talk with other writers where we're having these private conversations that we share with you, they're pretty unfiltered, then you might very well want to take a look and see what the Life Writing Premium program is. And just frankly, I'm going to do something that's unprofessional and just suggest again, David's program. David's the real deal. He is a real writer. He's a writer's writer. He's been doing this long enough that he really has seen the cycles. Tanana Reeve and I have seen those cycles too. So what you're getting right here are some pretty solid suggestions about what you can do to move your career forward. Yeah, uh, when I, I never had, I had never heard of the hero's journey, Steve, before I met you and 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 your teaching. So my approach is it wasn't that, but we have learned to blend the approach. I like it. I like it a lot, actually. It's very useful. But also, I, I taught in the MFA program at Antioch University, Los Angeles, for about ten years, and have done all kinds of lectures on scene structure. You know, you have writers who are in the middle of their third book in a trilogy and still haven't mastered how to write a scene, you know, and that kind of thing. So did scenes- you raise your hand, David? Yeah, yeah, I did. I want to point something out. One of the assignments I gave my class a month ago was look at other story structures besides the hero's journey. There are other ways to tell a story that are not the hero's journey. And they came up with a lot of good stuff. Some of it drawn from Asian and African fables and, and stories that are not about you know, the hero having to have working towards this major transformation, which changes who it is, you know, Star Wars, the original film was the hero's journey. And so was Wizard of Oz. But there are stories that exist not as a hero's journey, and they're very effective. Now, what what we do, we look at it. Our our thought is that the structure of the hero's journey works because it mirrors the structure of life, that there is nothing you can do that I cannot map there. So you can minimalize it. It's like the 88 keys of a piano. You don't. Oh, I, I agree. I agree with you. The hero's journey, uh, as you said, mirrors the structure of life. Yeah. Out of it. Time about a structure that you think is not, is not related to that. I'd be yeah. very interested. That's another conversation, but I'd be very interested in having that with you sometimes. Well, all right. I'll give you one. The Buddhist fable. And this is one of my favorites. 
two monks decide they're going to go on a pilgrimage and they take a vow of celibacy and this and that and the other. And uh, they come to a river where a woman is crying because she cannot cross the river. So one of the monks picks her up and, and carries her across the river. And the other one go, goes with him. And he puts her down and they go on. And the other monk says, we took a vow before we left. And you, they were not going to celibacy and never touch a woman and et cetera, et cetera. And he goes on and on and on. And finally, the older monk turns to him and says, I only carried her across the river. You carried, you've been carrying her for nine miles. And my response to that would be that that is a story that is a, is a capsule along the road of trials. The, yes, the young monk wants is to achieve enlightenment. Along yes. the way, he has to identify and deconstruct his illusions. So this is a moment in which one of his illusions that literally not touching a woman, even if she is in distress. Yeah, most is, of the Buddhist, is more, most of the Buddhist is more fables are. Most of the Buddhist fables are chapters along the road to enlightenment. Exactly. So to me, it is the hero's journey. It's just, you know, the way I interpret it, it's, it's, it's one of the mini cycles. It's one of the micro cycles inside a macro cycle. So yeah. you know, like I said, another, another conversation. And we do, you know, I, obviously the Life Writing Premium course isn't all about the hero's journey. It really is just sort of you look at yourself as the hero or heroine of your story and you are mirroring those steps of a protagonist as you face your road of trials, as you face your dark night of the soul and keep going. It's a subscription model. So it's $29 a month. You can quit at any point, but hopefully you do it for the whole year long program where again, it's weekly. It's as much or as little as you have time to do. We have in a beginner and advanced level. We have the social media well, page. Let me, let me give you, let me give you a supportive word on that. Great. As you, as you, Steve has said, it's it's the million words it's the muscle memory it's the the 10,000 hours it that's why people need to subscribe for a year because practice makes permanent you can't just dip in for a week or two and say oh yeah that was useful and then you know I'll spend a month and no you gotta it's got to be become part of who you are it's got to become parent in who you are and that only happens when you practice over and over because practice makes permanent absolutely thank you very much for that David and www dot lifewritingpremium.com I think it's time for us to say thank you very this is, very much so incredible David wow, what a great <laughs> you didn't know we, we had such an enthusiastic studio audience did you so thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this was a oh, great I'm glad you conversation me. thank you oh, so much so good to talk to you I listeners love you both so much I love you both so much I would have done this oh Wow. No, well, it's it's we great, David. I, I thank you for all the years of, of genuine friendship. I don't believe that a, co- a harsh word has ever passed between us. And Not yet, but I'm working on one. Okay. <laughs> I got a couple yeah. words for you. Make some up if but, I have to. <laughs> uh, we'll have you back on one day, but in, in, until then, just you know, love your family and your life and keep writing these wonderful stories for us. Absolutely. Okay? And thank audience, so everyone keep masking thank up. I, I apologize for the, we used to have a curtain that could, that blocked that door. It would have blocked the noise, but. Uh, no, no, it, that's, the that's, that's life, buddy. That's the message yeah, issue. Now, now you know what, you know. You, life is going to insert itself no matter what you do. You can't escape it. And I, well, I love it. John Lennon said, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Yeah. So everyone, <laughs> take stay, care, everybody. Stay masked up. Be safe. Right on. <laughs> All right. Be the hero in the adventure of your lifetime. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. 
New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.